Welcome to Moments in Leadership, a podcast where you will hear firsthand about the careers of senior military leaders as they share their own unique and individual experiences. Moments in Leadership will immerse you in real-life stories where you will learn about the challenging situations these accomplished leaders faced and discover the lessons they learned early in their careers that were the most influential to developing their overall leadership style. And now, here's your host, retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel David B. Armstrong. Today, my guest is Vice Admiral Ron Boxel and my first active duty guest. Admiral Boxel was commissioned in 1984 and went on to become a surface warfare officer whose time in the Navy included the commander of Carrier Strike Group 3 aboard the USS John C. Stennis. He had command of the USS Lake Erie, the USS Kearney, and was the executive officer on the USS Hue City. He served tours as a combat systems officer aboard the USS Simpson and the USS Ramage and was a division officer on the USS Merrill and the USS Kincaid. Currently, he is serving as the Director for Force Structure Resources and Assessment, which is the J-8 on the Joint Staff. Admiral Boxel and I begin our discussion with his story of early combat aboard the USS Merrill during Operation Praying Mantis in 1988. Listeners may remember this as the operation when the guided missile frigate USS Samuel B. Roberts struck a mine, blowing an immense hole in its hull and injuring 10 sailors while deployed in the Persian Gulf as part of Operation Earnest Will, where U.S. warships were escorting reflagged Kuwaiti oil tankers to protect them from Iranian attacks. Admiral Boxel recalls an early incident on the USS Merrill where a navigation mistake resulted in the commanding officer relieving two of his fellow shipmates. This was one of Admiral Boxel's early and formative leadership lessons, and he discusses the teaching moments that can be embedded in mistakes, but more importantly, how they are ultimately handled by a commander. In this case, it created an environment where no one wanted to openly discuss problems with the commanding officer, and from that point forward, no one told the captain any bad news. We discussed the topic of empathy a few times, and he tells stories of how he made mistakes that were ultimately tied back to empathy, and how the emotion of wanting to be liked played into the mistakes when he relives a moment that involved hazing, and how he now wishes he had handled it differently, a personal regret from my youth that I share as well. He discusses how he had three non-punitive letters of caution over his career. This is a topic I find interesting because my podcast with Lieutenant General Brilakis also included a discussion of his non-punitive letters of caution. We had a fantastic conversation about command philosophy, and one of my takeaways from this discussion was that command philosophy is really the opportunity that leaders have at all levels to lay out the culture that they want to have in their command. While we do not go into this concept in the podcast, I do think that there is a great connection between culture and commander's intent. To me, culture is simply the day-to-day intent of your command. No one writes an operations order without using the word commander's intent, but we don't write an operations order for every plan of the day. Therefore, it's your command culture that becomes your everyday commander's intent, which is used to establish and accomplish the long-term mission of your command. We discuss the importance of running drills in the dark and at night when people are asleep, and how those formative lessons he learned during his time on the USS Merrill and watching the Samuel B. Roberts survive the mine strike were formative in developing his training priorities when he was the ship's damage control assistant. He tells a great Great story about how as the captain of a ship, he was brought the bad news while in a port call in the Seychelles Island, and how his whole team had to work together to overcome the mistake as a team. It was an interesting connection back to his first commanding officer who created an environment where no one wanted to bring him the bad news. This story contains some great leadership lessons for any leader at any level to understand and incorporate into their own leadership philosophies. As the Carrier Strike Group commanding officer, he discusses how he broke his leadership down into warfighting commanders, warfighting directors, 
and tactical warfighters. He talked about how he created a vision and used those three groups to communicate his priorities down to the warfighting directors, where they were able to use that to communicate their own warfighting intent. He punctuates this leadership style with a great story about how a handler on the aircraft carrier reprioritized the launching and recovery of aircraft based on his tactical warfighting directives of the day. It's an example of what leaders at every level need to strive for in their command. We start to wrap up the interview when I pose the question, what do young leaders need to do to get ready for leadership challenges they will see in the future? And he has some fantastic suggestions for everyone to consider regardless of rank or tenure in the service. We conclude with what he feels to be the most important leadership trait or principle any leader can have. Without ruining everything, it's a pretty common thread across all the podcasts, and it just makes me wonder how good of a job we're really doing taking care of all the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that are placed in our charge as leaders. And if the old saying, take care of your men and women, has simply become a tired leadership refrain, I don't have any sort of answer based on survey results or data, but I suspect we may need to do some work on this. I plan to cut a solo episode soon where I start to connect many of the leadership moments that are shared throughout my interviews into a lessons learned format, along with some personal opinions. So stay tuned for that. If you know anyone who you think would be a good person to interview as I continue on with this project, please send me a message at my Instagram account, The Mill Office, or over email at themilloffice at gmail.com. Now, Here's my interview with Vice Admiral Ron Boxel, United States Navy. Welcome, Vice Admiral Ron Boxel. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule and uh, for having the distinct honor of being my first active duty officer on the podcast. It's exciting to to have somebody take some time out of their day and, and help with this project. Well, thank you, Dave. This is uh, really a, a treat for me. After listening to a bunch of your podcasts, the, there's some great stories that I've heard and things I've learned. And it's really caused me to think a little bit more about some times back in my junior officer days that I hadn't really thought about and made the connection between things that happened when I was younger versus things that you know I think about and do every day now. Thanks for that. To orient everybody who's listening, you know, the purpose of this podcast is I, I want to make sure that people who have 30 and 40 years of really extensive leadership experience and, and experience in the service have a medium for capturing their leadership lessons and those moments in leadership that they experienced so that it's available for future leaders to consume and use for themselves. I always like to start out the interview with a question, where is Ron Boxel from and how did he discover the Navy? Well, I think uh, Ron Boxel is from a small town in upstate New York called Holland Patton, New York, farmland in this very small town, football, baseball, basketball player, you know, I was probably a pretty good student, but, you know, I really didn't try that hard. You know, I come from a pretty patriotic background. I had an uncle who was at Iwo Jima, but I never really saw myself in the Navy. Uh, I really went to, I tried for all the scholarships for Navy ROTC uh, and ended up getting picked up by the Navy because they seemed to want me the least and that always bothered me. So I found myself at a four-year scholarship at Penn State. I originally went in just to do two years and, you know, punt after two years, get the free one, uh, and after two years, I realized I needed the Navy more than they needed me. And I eventually did go into the Navy as a flight student to go into flight school. Really, I, somewhere along the line, my, you know, I went off the aviation path and got into surface warfare. And it was a very happy coincidence for me because it turned out to be something I really loved and enjoyed doing. Of course, we'll get to this later, but you did get an opportunity in your career to quench your thirst for some uh, naval aviation rides. I've seen some of the pictures that you have, and uh, you've had some exciting rides up there, but we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later down the line. 
I'll start out with this. 100% of us start out in the military as either you know an E1 or an O1, but only 1% make it to general officer. Tell me some stories that you remember from the first five years of your career that you look back on as crystallizing moments, You know those aha moments that stayed with you forever. Well, I mean, for me, it's very easy. When I think back on my career, the most defining moment for me really was when I was a gunnery officer on what was my second ship. So I'll just kind of transition you from aviation to surface. I, I, I went up, uh, started out as a flight student, went to fly airplanes and my eyes went bad. So, so I said, well, I'll just stay here and go be a Navy flight officer. I went there and then my flight physiology, I had a tendency to black out and loops. So they said, hey, you're never going to be a, an aviator. So uh, they sent me out west. And on the way there, they sent me to a, the surface warfare officer school was in Coronado, California, Newport, Rhode Island. I'd never been out west. So I said, let's go out to California. They sent me temporarily for three or four months to a destroyer that was operating in the Northern Pacific. And this was back in Hunt for Red October days. I mean, we were part of a new anti-submarine warfare squadron called Destroyer Squadron 31, which brought in you know helicopters and submarines and towed array sonars and and linking them all together. And, and, and I found myself as the assistant anti-submarine warfare officer, not knowing anything about really surface ships at all. Uh, and now I'm in the midst of one of the most fascinating warfare areas in our community. So I really found that keeping a Yankee submarine down, a Russian Yankee holding them down for about eight or nine days at a time was pretty cool. You know, knowing there was someone down below that you're sitting there pinging on top of and dropping sauna buoys and tracking them wherever he went. And you could see him trying to get it. For me, that was incredibly exciting. And then we threw in some port visits and, and I said, okay, I'm hooked. So that kind of got me into surface warfare. But but I ended up going off of that ship, which is the USS Kincaid, and I went to surface warfare officer school now with all that fleet experience of three months. And again, I found that I really liked it. But I went to another Spruance class destroyer, which was really the state of the art at the time. Uh, I was assigned as the gunnery officer. And little did I know that, you know, a couple years later, I would be sitting in the middle of probably one of the most pivotal moments for naval surface gunnery since Vietnam era. Uh, when I was the gunnery officer during Operation Praying Mantis on April 18th, 1988. And so for me, that was, you know, just we're just minding our own business until uh, Samuel B. Roberts, a fellow ship with us, a frigate, got mined. And boy, you know, that was a really eye-opening moment for me. Oh, this is real. I mean, here's a ship with people maybe dying very close to us. Uh, and you could hear all the the stuff going on in the net and things trying to get them help and us trying to move in to assist with them, also knowing that there's a minefield all around us. And then lo and behold, four days later, I uh, was the gunnery officer uh, as we decided to do an action against the Iranian in, in retribution for the mining of the, basically the, the Gulf, but specifically against the Sammy B. Roberts. So that was the principal defining moment for me that I said, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. And this is a really cool thing to be part of. That was 1988. And what, what rank were you? Yeah. So I'll, I'll just continue a little bit on what exactly happened that day. So I woke up, you know, regular day, we found out the night before there's all this secure stuff. I'm a Lieutenant at that point, but you know, I'm a Lieutenant in age. Cause I spent a couple extra years in the flight program. But really, I'm a JG by all practical purposes. So I'm, you know, four years into my career, and I have a gunnery officer. I'm a gunnery officer in a division of about 20 people. So I own, we have two five-inch 54 gun mounts on this ship. It's a Spruance class destroyer. Uh, I remember very distinctly that our role was to go in there. We were going to be one part of a three-ship surface action group with us, the USS Trenton, which was a, an amphibious ship with the Marines, 
and also had another destroyer with this USS Line McCormick. And we were part of a surface action group that was to take out an oil separating platform that was really used as a command and control platform for the Iranians. And we were part of a, uh, one SAG was going to do one oil platform, another SAG had another oil platform, and then there was a third group that was going to go hunt down a couple of their ships and, and kind of trade ship for ship. We were going to take out uh, ships that were originally U.S. ships, but were now Iranian. And so that was the action for the day. At eight o'clock in the morning, we we're supposed to move in, start shooting at eight o'clock. People get off the platform and we're just going to shoot up the platform and then rig it with explosive with the Marine Recon debt on Trenton and drop it into the ocean. And that was going to be our mission for the day. So that all sounded good. But as we got in closer, we realized uh, this is not going to work. We can't see the platform that far away from where we want to be. So we said, let's get in closer. Well, we're also dodging now oil spouts coming out and pipes and things. So we're starting to get into some shallow water, but we're getting in close enough to see. We're getting told there's people on there. We got to get them away. We actually told them again to move from the platform. They said they wanted to get off. They got a little boat that some people got off and that was it. We said, we're going to shoot in five minutes. They got out of the way and we commenced fire at 0800.05. And at 0800.05 and 10 seconds later, something we hadn't planned on was them shooting back at us. We knew they had some uh, guns on board, but we didn't know. We, we were told they were inoperable and we didn't really even see them. So, uh, But we knew immediately when I heard sounds, it sounded like our small arms fire, but it, there were ZSU-23 anti-aircraft guns shooting at us now closer than, you know, well in range of their weapons due to the fact that we'd gotten in so close. And so Ron Boxall sitting inside the uh, Combat Information Center manning two gun stations, one to the right of me, one to the left of me, and one to the center console. We're looking at everything. We have an air spotter, a Marine air spotter, who we who had we'd picked our targets out ahead of time. And immediately they started firing at us. Well, I know you have an Anglico background and, you know, something I never expected to hear was counter battery, counter battery, which of course is your number one mission. And, you know, I remember, you know, hearing the, the rounds coming at us and thinking, oh my God, we got to do something right now. If, if we don't hit this guy, there, somebody could die on our ship. And that was crystallizing as you could possibly be. We went right into automatic, you know, counter battery mission. Uh, we went, turned out right, right back around and fired maybe another 20, 30 rounds of an air bursting projectile that ended up taking out the gun emplacement. And then obviously the fire stopped. So, so that was to me, I mean, that was as, as intense as, you know, I'd ever seen or planned on. And, and now game was on. I mean, you know, we didn't know what else was coming at us, but in our view, uh, you become, you know, you've just had a ship get mined a few days before we're in shallow water. We're kind of vulnerable. We've just been fired at, and there was a lot of chaos. I mean, it was noisy on the bridge. There was a lot of uncertainty, you know, when they heard the gunfire, they thought it was us shooting our small arms, and it was pretty clearly noticed that it was not. And so to me, that was a, it was a huge moment. I learned a lot in those few hours, but specifically those first few minutes. And to me, at that point, you know, I was just praying to God that we didn't screw up and, and hopefully uh, no one would be hurt on our end. Which ship was that that you were on? That was on the USS Merrill, was a, a Spruance class destroyer, DD-976. Again, I was a lieutenant, but, you know, 03. But typically you make 03 at four years. And so I was, you know, most lieutenants are department heads at that point, but I was still a division officer uh, because I'd spent a couple years in the flight program. So I was really like a, a ensign JG, but in my first division officer tour. Reflecting back on that time, you're a lieutenant, the environment must have been a little bit elevated in terms of readiness with the Samuel B. Roberts having already been mined. There was a mental state that was a little bit more prepared, but I'm assuming that no one else in your crew had been in a combat situation before 
what sort of advice do you have for a future O2 or O3 that's out there at sea, having not seen combat before, that they could take away from that as a learning experience? What was it that made that crew work so well with no experience in combat before? For me, it was practice, practice, practice. You know, when we went into counter battery mode, it was because we were told, you know, that's how it happened in training. In training, you'd be sitting there doing some mission and just out of a clear blue sky, so it would catch you off guard. And we'd done that so many times that it just went naturally to the training. So very clearly, I mean, this is, this became something that I became very much was my modus operandus throughout my department head tour into command, preserving time for training and making sure that we you know, we did it deliberately, weekly. I mean, we, just making it a part of a, a religious experience where you're, you're going to do it every single week. You are not going to give it up for anything else. It becomes your number one priority. If you're going to train like you're going to fight, then you've got to actually train. The old adage, you know, you sweat while you train so you don't have to bleed when you're in real life. And so uh, we we definitely used that mantra, but no question uh, when it happened, everyone's, you know, just tightened right up. I mean, you went into high mode, everybody's eyeballs got bigger. Uh, there were people running around the other side of the, you know, trying to protect themselves from what they thought were rounds that were going to be coming through the hull, and they never, never did. Top side, they saw some, but we didn't get anything hit the ship from where we were. And so, you know, it, it, you just go right into that automatic moment. There's also this idea that you trust what everybody's going to do. You know, I got people screaming above me, tell, asking me what's going to happen. You know, what are we doing? What are we going out with? There are people wanting to try to tell me what to do. And you almost just had to ignore that and focus on what you knew. Focus on what you've been trained to do. Trust your people because those things take time. When you shift your missions, you're now shifting types of ammunition. There's people down below. I knew all that. So by knowing all that, I knew that I had to make sure the leadership above left them alone. You know, And that became part of my job was to not only do my job as the gunnery liaison officer, but also to make sure that the folks below didn't have more people screaming at them to do things what seemed like an eternity. From the time you're getting shot at, the time you do a counter-battery mission with a different type of ammunition, you know, that's that's a whole different, uh, every second lasts a lot longer. Was there ever a moment during that engagement where somebody looked at you and said like, hey, sir, are you sure? Was there any hesitancy at all when you do all of the practice, but at the end of the day, you're really not pulling the trigger for the most part, unless you're target practicing, but was there a moment there at all where anybody just said like, Hey, sir, are you, are you sure about this? There was never, never. We didn't even, we didn't think twice about it. I mean, that's the whole thing. It was just went right into natural mode. It was total training. And, uh, and again, this is, you know, until you just said that, I never really thought it might be something to second guess yourself or whatever. We just knew we actually could see where they were shooting from through one of the cameras on the, uh, the gun control officer console that was right in front of me. And then you have one console on either side of, him who is controls the aft mount one controls the forward mount but in the middle you can kind of see the camera and then you can see the display of the radar picture and so we actually had a very good picture i had a air spotter telling me counter battery where this where the target was shooting at us from we popped it into the camera we punched in the spots we had to uh, it's very difficult also to shoot at an oil platform you're used to shooting at flat targets on land you know what the height is we had already talked about it ahead of time that this was going to be difficult. You're shooting at something that's half metal and half air that's sitting off the water. We figured to this day, I remember 13 meters high and, you know, thinking about how you're going to use what type of ammunition, you know, are you going to use a, an air bursting projectile? You're going to use, we ended up using a mechanically timed point detonating round that we, we hand cranked the timing for a 13 foot burst. And so that's what took a little bit time, but, but boy, it was the right choice waiting a couple of seconds for the right ammo 
it went off just like advertised. And the first one, we could see it right through the camera and we knew that we, we were on target. Air spotter kept saying, yeah, right on, right on, <laughs> you know, continue, just continue, continue. And, uh, and, you know, it was over in about 30, 40 rounds. I'm going to jump back and forth here a little bit, but you just told an incredible story. Did that event in that moment play heavily into your leadership style when you then eventually became the skipper of a ship? Your experience in combat like that with an engagement and then coming back to a new crew and saying like, here's what I know. You know, interestingly, I, I really never talked to a lot of people about that particular engagement, but it drove everything that I did operationally. I know in the back of my mind, I probably should have, but it was, I don't know, for whatever reason, it was just kind of a private thing. I, I don't know. It's, it's strange, but to, you know, again, I never really talked to a lot of people about the experience itself and what that meant for me, but it inculcated in me clear direction to ensure that we had properly trained. I mean, if you ask anybody that's ever worked for me, even in my department head tours, you know, when I worked on Aegis ships, you know, I became literally Fridays were training day. And if you want to do anything on my ship on a Friday, it wasn't going to happen until training was done. I don't care if, you know, it, it needed my permission or above mine to change it. And so, so it drove my mentality. It drove my uh, prioritization. You know, I'll talk a little bit later about, you know, very simple philosophy I have on leadership, which is, you know, your job as a leader is to prioritize. And then when you prioritize something, you're taking risks somewhere else. And then the third piece is communicate. So it, unfortunately, it, it goes to the three-letter acronym of PRC, but priorities, risk, and communication is the role of a leader. Only that person in charge can set the priorities and therefore tell you what, the, what it is you're not going to be doing because you only have so many resources, whether it's people, money, or stuff. And then you know that carries right into the biggest role as you go higher. And the more difficult thing is the communication piece and setting the environment of communication where people will tell you things that aren't right. And so I'll talk a little bit more about that later. I love those little three-word leadership lessons. People can jot that down and remember that. So let's definitely make sure we come back to that. Any other times in your first five years, a success story or even a failure? I have some, uh, I think some things I learned, uh, you know, you learn from good leaders, you learn from bad leaders. I had a CEO who was very, very difficult on that ship. Now that, that particular CEO who had only just reported aboard maybe two weeks before that, we went and did a change of command in the Seychelles and then we went right back up into the Gulf. So to do the change of command. And, 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 and so he really didn't have a lot of experience, didn't know who to trust. He was a really good warfighter. He'd been an operations officer on a battleship. I mean, you know, that was big stuff back then. But he was very, very, very hard on the ship. Uh, very high standards, which was great. He was a very good warfighter, which was great. But he was also, you know, if you didn't meet the standard, you were dead on arrival. And this, so he had zero tolerance for anybody that didn't, you know, that couldn't achieve, you know, what he thought pretty close to perfection right out of the gate, which has just not been my experience. So one particular thing I'll never forget is we were, I was the officer of the deck on, on a, I came to, to relieve the watch on a, as officer of the deck. So I'm going to take over on the ship, driving the ship in charge of the ship while everybody sleeps. And this is still on the Merrill. Yes, yeah, still on Merrill. I forget exactly where we were going to, but I remember I came to relieve the watch. And when you come on the watch, you, you, you go to the engineering plant first, get a, get an idea of what's going on. Then you go into the comp information center and you, and you see what's going on operationally. And then you come up to the bridge and you adjust your eyes. It takes a while to get from darkness to light or from, from the light you're coming into, into the darkness and your eyes have to adjust. So it takes about 10 minutes. But while you're doing that, you're going over, you're checking into navigation, you're talking to the lookouts, you're, you're looking at the, you know, you're just getting your situational awareness to take the watch until you do those coveted words, I relieve you. And then you take the watch, it's on you while everybody else sleeps. Well, 
this particular time I came up and I looked at the watch and it said, you know, I looked and you have to be within a certain nav standard, navigation standard of range. If you're going from point A to point B, you don't want to be too far off. You could run into shoal water, but not really a problem when you're out in the open ocean, but you still want to know where you are. So as a matter of course, you go in and you take your, you fix your position before you take the watch. Well, I fixed the position and we were about 10 miles off of where we should have been. Now, inside of a mile back then in those days was pretty good. Now with GPS, it's, you know, you want to be within feet, but you certainly want to be in open ocean. Well, the CO came out and as was required, if you should take the watch and you're outside of a certain standard, you had to notify the commanding officer. Well, the commanding officer came out and it's completely dark. He's, he's, can't see anything. He just starts screaming as he gets on the bridge and he starts, you know, who the hell tell, you know, where are we? What, how did we get where we are? We're going to get the navigator up here. So somebody went and woke up the navigator. There's a, a, an enlisted quartermaster who's works for the navigator that's on every watch, but the navigator usually comes up for key evolutions or so navigator comes up and what it came down to was a very simple error that was just literally a mistake. It wasn't intentional. Back then, we didn't have GPS. We used the Loran C, long-range navigation, and there were basically time clicks on a line. So there's a navigation line. Well, the line looked a lot like our track line where the ship was actually going, and they'd actually transpose the two in the red light. So the black line looked like the Loran C brown line. And so when he marked his position, there was a simple mistake. The CO didn't know. He didn't care. I, that's what I saw when I looked at it. And I tried to communicate that to the captain. He said, I don't care. We don't go 10 miles off. He goes, you know, the OD was relieved. The navigator was relieved. And now I had the deck. And and I have two pissed off people that, you know, kind of put me in a bad position just because I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. So I learned a couple of huge lessons there that always stuck with me. Number one was that if you create an environment where no one is going to talk to you as the captain, then you are not hearing what you need to hear. Because from that point forward, no one told the captain any bad news, even when we knew it. And we all knew it. We knew when things weren't right, but people wouldn't tell him or we would, you know, it would not bubble up things that he should have known about. People just weren't going to tell If he asked us, he'd tell you, but no one volunteered information. And that was eye-opening for me because I said, back then we had a culture in surface warfare that you probably heard before, swos eat their young. That was more the commonality than it was and that bothered me greatly because I thought, you know, I really like this community, but I cannot live in a place where people just treat people like this. And it really bothered And I was not alone. This was common with a lot of folks that I'm happy to stay, stay in the Navy. And I think we changed the culture over time. And I would tell you today, I don't think that is the norm. There's certainly exceptions out there, but that's known to be poor behavior. One of the things that I find so fascinating about the Navy is when you're on a ship, your culture is your culture and everybody's living it and there's no reprieve from it. So I've got to imagine that setting the proper culture as a leader on a Navy ship is a critical aspect of leadership. Yeah, I would argue that it is the most critical, and I don't think it's on a Navy ship. My experiences have been in the Pentagon networks. My experience has been in other jo jobs, certainly in command of an aircraft carrier strike group. Setting the culture becomes more important the higher you go because you're farther from the people that make the action of the ship. So if you're a strike group commander, your problem is going to be a lieutenant on a ship that makes a mistake or a pilot in command of his aircraft or someone who's in a, a watchstander in a, a combat information center. Those are the, that's the tactical level. And that tactical warfighter level is where the, where it happens. Well, then you look at, you know, that's the lieutenant level, 0434 level. And then you look, you're at the 067 area, right? So if you're, when, when you get up there, there's a lot of folks between you to prevent. So if you don't have a system in place 
not just at your level, but between you and those folks that everywhere all along the way have to all understand the culture of trust and creating a safe place for people that will believe that, you know, you have their best interest at heart and that, you know, therefore they can trust you to tell things when things get, what I like to say, look for the, the it's effed up moment, you know, go, go find those things out there that are effed up. And if people tell them to you, that's gold. In other podcasts, I've talked about taking risk and risk management and how that can infect some career aspirations. And I have found that the more that leaders create an environment where everyone is scared to take risks, you don't end up with a very well-trained unit. And you just said it in a completely different way, which was nobody wanted to tell the captain anything because they saw how he just went off the rails on a very simple mistake. Not an unimportant issue, navigation, but still in the grand scheme of things could have been a much better learning moment for everybody than a fearful moment. I don't know if that is very clear to a lot of young leaders. Your job isn't to be a yeller and a screamer, and your job is to set the conditions for success for those young leaders to go out there and learn and not be afraid of taking action and making decisions. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I, and I like I said, I've spent a lot of time in my striker command, and people that are going out to command a carrier striker, one of the things I bring them in is, let me tell you, first of all, different cultures. You have you have ready room cultures, you have carrier cultures, you have nuclear powered cultures, you have surface warfare. And how do you get all those folks, you know, so many people don't know you, they don't know who you are. So what types of things do you do to create that environment? Because your job isn't at that point about being the best gunnery officer or the best watchstander or the best pilot. Your job becomes all about how do you nurture the environment that will bring the problems to you? And invariably, there's people that believe in this and there's people who don't. It takes a long time to generate it. And I can talk to you about some of the interesting stories on that, how I, how I know it didn't work at first and how I knew it eventually did over the course of my career through some, some pretty funny moments. I'll bring those up a little bit when I talk about the, the carry a little bit. I, I want to go back to the, um, you, know, you asked me a question about my own failures. I'll tell you, if you think about you know, the value of people in your organization, which you know, no question. You know, I, interesting listening to a couple of the other podcasts. Uh, I was very in, interested to hear that, you know, guys like General Barakas would talk about the empathy, the value of empathy. And, uh, and I got to tell you, he's spot on. And, you know, that's something we were never taught when we were younger. There was no empathy. It was not something we cared about. But I can tell you right now that, you know, the empathetic leaders are the ones that are, are going to be most effective today and in the future. And I've seen the transition uh, in my lifetime. And I think I only wish I had really thought about this more as a younger officer, because I go back to the things that bothered me most about mistakes I'd make in command. And I think it would surprise most people because they're always looking for something. It's actually two issues where I failed people who worked for me. And one in particular was uh, on the Merrill. Yeah, U.S. Merrill, obviously. And it was a, a gunnery officer or a gunnery seaman. He's GMG, GMG SN. And I remember I was relatively new in the gunnery officer division. I came aboard and, you know, you're always struggling with, you know, do you, do you, do you want people to like you? Do you want to, you know, you got to have a hard line. I mean, what are you going to be? You know, you didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about it. So you just kind of fumble into what you're going to end up doing till you, till you get it wrong and have to fix it. So I was walking around the ship, was supposed to do, you're supposed to check on the birthing compartment. This is where the sailors live and all mines lived in one particular birthing. And as I was walking by, I went in and I heard a lot of commotion going on in there. So I, you know, you didn't just walk into birthing, you gave them their space. So you knock on the door and they're like, and they'd open the door, kind of poke their head out. And 
Oh, it's just you, Lieutenant JG Boxall at the time. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, what's going on in here? Oh, nothing to see in here, sir. Nothing to see in here. And I was like, yeah, what's going on? I poked my head in there, looked around a little bit, and I saw what looked like just, just what we would call grab assing back then. And, you know, they're just, you know, it looked like someone was wrestling or there was something going on. I couldn't really tell what it was. Well, I just let it go and I just kept walking. And, and then maybe three, four hours later, I was back around the aft end of the ship again. I was walking to sick bay, which is our medical quarters. And I looked in there and I was walking by, I see this one GMG seaman in there. And he's, I say, what are you doing in here? And I looked in his, his arm looks like a balloon. It's like, almost looks like a, it's, it's grotesquely, uh, you know, just, and I was like, what, what happened? He said, well, sir, I just made petty officer and they tacked, they were tacking my crow on, which so mm. in the Navy, we had a, a hazing tactic that was popular where, you know, the chevron that goes on their sleeve when they went from a seaman that didn't have anything on his on his sleeve to his crow, they would do what they call tack on your crow. And so what they do is they'd hold your arm out and people would take turns hitting it as hard as they could. And they'd like, so what I had later realized I, I had missed when I walked around was that they were, they had this one guy holding his arm while everybody was taking turns, literally jumping and pounding on his arm. Over time, his, he had broken capillaries on his arm. Well, we almost had to send him off to have his arm amputated. Oh. And I, it made me sick. I literally sick to my stomach that I had somehow missed be, just because I didn't ask. I didn't, I, did, I, I thought, Hey, I'll be the cool guy walking by and not do anything. And that bothered me so bad. It really made me sick. And it, over time, it's actually bothered me more. Like I, I wonder if I should reach out back to the kid I haven't talked to in, you know, 30 years and say, Hey, you hope your arm's still okay. It turns out he recovered fine. Everything was good. But to me, I was like, okay, that was because I didn't act when I should have. I knew something was going on. I didn't act. And that failure to act became something that drove me later on. I said, I'm never going to be that person that sits idly by and lets something happen to one of my sailors. Never. And I really thought I did a pretty good job at that. Only a few years later, I actually had another situation that, that again, in hindsight, I probably could have done better. And it was the same type of thing. It was a it was a sailor. We were overseas stopping in a port somewhere, and I got a phone call from the CDO, command duty officer, who said to me, hey, sir, we got this problem. This kid, you know, we were, we were getting ready to get underway, and one of the awnings, you know, we, we put up awnings with uh, the shade, the quarterdeck watches. It gets pretty hot over there in Greece and a lot of other places. So when they're taking this thing down, it slipped, and the whole rig fell down and literally landed on his boot, and we all wore steel-toed boots, which is the good news. The bad news is the steel-toed boot actually cut through his toes. So the initial report I got was, hey, sir, it looks like he's got a pretty bad cut in his feet here. You know, we're going to run him over to the infirmary over here on the base. There was a, a small naval detachment there. And then a little bit later, same thing, you know, get another report. Hey, sir, yeah, he's not doing so great, but, you know, we got a doctor in there. They're going to sew up his toes. He's doing okay. Well, what bothered me was, is I kept getting kind of the optimistic spin on this thing instead of, you know, someone actually telling me and what I'd failed to do again, you know, again, I wasn't where he was. I was on a cell phone back when we, you know, they're big bricks and I'm on the other side of the Island. And, but I should have gone at that point when he left for the infirmary, I should have gone over and put my eyes on it because eventually he was transferred into Greek medical care. And unfortunately, and I don't think this is an issue with Greek, Greece. I think it was just an issue of the time delay and it being a weekend. And, but he ended up having his toes amputated. And again, I know, could I have done anything about it? I don't know. But what bothered me is that we got this to that level. I'd never put my eyes on it and I never got over to see him. You know, we're getting ready to get the ship underway. You got a mission to do and all that. But that still, after the fact, bothered me. This whole idea that I have a responsibility to take care of sailors 
and something happened, I hurt a sailor on my watch, even though not perfectly responsible, you as the commander are responsible, period. So those are the two. If I look back, which on a 37-year career, I think that's probably okay, but it clearly tells me that that was something that, you know, for, for me was important. I'm so glad you said that because I've, I've had some similar experiences back in my tenant and captain's days where, you know, it was tradition sort of like tacking on the crow when an NCO in the Marine Corps got their blood stripe sewn on the side of their blue trousers, the other NCOs would come by and kind of knee you in your thigh. And those things could get out of control really fast. And then, as you mentioned before, I was in the Anglico community back when they had a jump mission. And when you got your gold wings, you would get them punched into your chest. And I have distinct memories of official formations with the commanding officer and the sergeant major winging people. And when you see those things and you're younger, you think, well, this is sort of the tradition. This is what makes us so great. We, you know, we're a tough unit. We have all these traditions and I would never go in and say like, hey, blood striping a new corporal is wrong. And I regret those things as much as you regret the tacking of the crow on. And I'll tell any junior leader that's listening right now you will regret those decisions to let those things go on when you get older and you have a different perspective on things. I wish that I had had the maturity level then that I have now to go in and stop those things when they happened. Well, I will say that if there were good things that came out of it for me was, you know, the tradition remained. Hazing was not frowned upon like it, like it is now, but certainly, but there were some dictums put out about it. But, but in my particular case, I was adamant about it. I said, you know, I know what's going to happen here. You know, CEO is going to tell you not to do it. You're not going to do it. You're still going to do it when you're not here. But let me tell you right now, if I find out about it and I'm going to ask people, and it's funny because I go back and I looked at my command philosophies and both of my command philosophies, it's command philosophy. You're right when you're a commanding officer, you know, to kind of think about your leadership style and you kind of communicate those things. But one word, you know, I, I didn't take them out to, for this. I probably should have, but uh, one line I remember, I said, you know, any actions against your shipmates are the worst kind and will be treated as accordingly. Now, these are blue on blue engagements, we call them now. But, you know, I think about it now under the guise of, you know, integrated crews. You know, I've had situations where folks have been, you know, sexual assault, harassment, hazing, all these things is that, you know, I honestly haven't had a problem because I've literally come out of the gate. If you want to immediately get your one-way ticket off of here in a way you don't want to go, that's what you got to do. So you got to live what you talk about. And to me, that was, that was something that, and honestly, I never had, never had an issue with it the rest of my career, really, with, with any of those types of things. That's great to hear. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I recently saw in the paper, somebody was investigating the death of a college student at a fraternity due to a hazing incident. It's, hazing isn't just unique to the military. I think there's something about society and, oh, it happened to me, so I'm going to get to do it to somebody else mentality. I recently heard an enlisted Marine say, Imagine how much good we would do for retention in human resources if instead of hazing a brand new private when they joined an infantry battalion, we welcomed him to the team and made him feel part of the team right away rather than hazing him and making him feel like he had to earn the right to be in the battalion. Think of how much better of a Marine we would actually be producing if we welcomed him or her with open arms rather than hazing them the minute they stepped into the barracks. And I thought, wow, that was really a powerful statement. Yeah, I, I have, you know, I think back, you know, the culture has changed. We have this service selection night at the Naval Academy every year where the, they actually select their ships. It's a ship selection night and uh, they all get together. And it's almost like a draft. I mean, you, know, you put a list of ships up there, everybody comes down, but ships are now bringing their wardrooms up like from Norfolk or or if there's something in the building that just came from a ship and in San Diego, they bring stuff. It's a whole mentality has changed. They have websites set up on the ship to say, 
you know, pick my ship. So you have all these folks out there, hey, this is the type of ship you're going to be on. They send videos and it's a totally different environment. And let me tell you what, there's no amount of hazing and bonding that occurs during hazing that could ever possibly match that type of welcoming family environment. As you said, on a ship, the culture is so intense. You, you know, you, I've lived, you know, when you deploy for six months at a time on a ship or more, and you know, you're spending more time with those folks. I've spent more time on those ships than I have with my twin brother. I only spent nine months with him tightly together. But, but you know, if you think about, it, he went in the Navy separately. He was a Navy corpsman. You know, I've spent more time with shipmates on that ship than I did with my own brother in my lifetime. I know senior leaders are generally pretty humble about themselves, but do you remember the very first time that you were really proud of yourself as a leader? And can you tell us about that? The first time really was, I mean, there's a lot of like smaller events that kind of start contributing. I mean, I was a nuclear weapons security officer on my on Merrill. Uh, we brought the Tomahawk weapon system in. We were the first ship to have the Tomahawk cruise missile. And so therefore, we, were, we for the whole Navy, had a, what they call a defense nuclear surety exam, uh, where you get folks that do this on every service that come aboard and, you know, put a standard. They're not sure how to do it on ships. So we were, we were writing the book for nuclear policy onboard ships that had these new nuclear, potentially nuclear capable missiles, et cetera. So I remember uh, sweating bullets on this thing, getting ready for it, but we pump people up. I mean, you have to, you have to respond to alerts in a certain amount of time. You have, there's personnel reliability programs, there's administrative programs, there's quality of the guard forces, there's testing and all this stuff has to occur. And any one of those, which can cause you to lose your certification. Well, we went through and there's like eight different areas in it. And we literally had, you know, I was responsible for about four of those. And my areas, in, in fact, the whole ship aced the inspection. And my four areas got like, you know, off the charts, like 100% in every area, which, you know, they said it was very rare because these people are pretty tight. I mean, I was pretty pumped and, and so was the, the team. I mean, we, we'd done a lot of work and done a lot of drills and stuff to make sure we practiced, rehearsed. And, and it was just for me, that's when I said, okay, this is, it was all the things that we'd learned already that, you know, this deliberate behavior of this Friday, we're going to do this, this Friday, we're going to do this, this Friday, whatever it was. Once you set that battle rhythm, it really becomes, it's not that, geez, I hope we're good enough to get it right. It's like, you're going to do it so much so you can't get it wrong. You know, then it became something where you did get kind of not cocky, but certainly confident. And there's a good confident, and then there's cocky confident. And uh, and we were right at the right level. So I felt that was my first, you know, that's the first time I think I remember. And then, of course, you know, Operation Praying Manus after it was done. I mean, I was just, I knew that we did, had done a good job because we had succeeded. We kept everybody safe. And ultimately, the rest of the day, I mean, we essentially went to war with Iran for a day. I mean, that turned into a full-blown kind of shoot 'em up between us and the you know, between the three SAGs and go hunting for their ships and planes got involved and they shot some of our own um, civilian vessels. You know, they couldn't attack us, so they would go after U.S. flag merchant vessels. And so just kind of corralling everybody up and, and, you know, marching out and coordinating with aviation assets and Marines and SEALs and uh, EOD. It was just, a, I mean, it was just like a, a one day, just a whirlwind. So I just remember at the end of it, while it was a very scary day, it was, uh, we lost a, a helicopter pilot, which would made it I mean, that was the worst part of the whole thing, a Cobra pilot. But we knew we did our mission. We knew that, you know, we had done our job as we were supposed to do it. And more importantly, we knew that we were going to be okay because, you know, we kind of, Iranians were not going to harass us the rest of the time we were there. They really didn't, couldn't do it. But the other thing is they wouldn't do it. So, so to me, I think that was when I really knew that we'd, we'd done a good job in our little part of it, that I had succeeded. I noticed on your bio that you 
have the combat action ribbon. Is that from Operation Praying Mantis? Yes, it is. It's funny because, you know, somewhere in there, you know, as you look through the medals, people kind of always say, hey, well, what are those medals do? You know, my, the one I'm most proud of is the one I got. It was a Navy Achievement Medal. Now no, I'll call it a Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal, which is like the first one you give to, it's the first real achievement medal almost anybody gives. But for me, I remember it was nominated to me as a uh, Navy Achievement Medal with a Combat V. People are saying, what, what should we get for these things? People didn't, you know, the CO got a bronze star with a Combat V and and I nominated my two folks for Navy Commendation Medals. And I was like, they're like, well, you should have something for you. I said, okay, well, maybe a NAM or something. And so I got a Navy Achievement Medal, which is the lowest kind of award, with a Combat V. And I remember it coming back, and it, it was with heroism. So it's a, And they, they came back denied because you can't have such a low medal with a Combat V on it. So they had to bump it up. And <laughs> my command didn't bump it up. They just kept it as a NAM. So I just got a NAM with no V. Uh, so it was approved with a NAM with no V. So it's still my favorite medal, one that means the most to me. It's just funny because, uh, you know, it's pretty low on the rack. That's a great story. I've often said that, uh, you know, if I was the commandant of the Marine Corps, I think I'd be more like Patton and just walk around with the box medals and just give them to people right on the spot for doing great things. And let's get rid of all the administrative red tape that goes along with some of these awards. And let's just award people for doing great jobs. The, the key is the speed with which you get it. Someone did something great right now and you hand it to them. How did those successes that you told me about, how were they used by you to develop junior leaders later on in your career? I don't think, and I think this is probably true for a lot of us, that you, know, you don't think you're really that much better than anybody else. You just go out and do things and, and you tend to just continue the things that made you successful until you go into a new level. And that's kind of what happens. You know, there's kind of this junior officer period where you're a kind of a manager, you're, you're given tasks and you accomplish them and, you know, you check the list and you're good. And then you become kind of an exoCO where you now become that leader, you cross from manager into leader. And, and now it's a whole different set of skills. You know, now it's more about those vision and priorities and risk and communication. You touched on this before. I'm trying to suss out a, a, another story from you along the lines of the story you told us about plotting the ship with the navigator. Can you tell me about the first time that you ever did something wrong? And do you remember how it was handled by your command or your commanding officer? And was it a positive learning experience or a negative one for you? Yeah. So I've got actually three, what we call non-punitive letters of caution, which is, I don't think it's that uncommon, but you know, one particular time I was the damage control assistant on Merrill again. And that was my second division officer tour. So I'd, now I am a no kidding lieutenant and, you know, I've been around there for a couple of years. So, and I'm in a second tour job and the damage control assistant on a ship is, it's like, you're like the head firefighter. You're also responsible for making sure that ship can, you know, if you, if you hit a mine or if you, if you have a fire or a flood on board, you can respond. So you, you have really three mini fire departments on a ship. You have the middle locker, which is called repair five. And that's always your best one. Cause that's your engineers. And they're the ones that like, you know, they take firefighting, you know, as number one. And then you have repair locker two, which is forward and repair locker three, which is aft on a ship like that. And they're just, you know, those are your, where you, you know, where you separate people out in case you have damage fore and aft, et cetera. So your repair five locker officer is typically one of your best officer that's in the engineering department. That's pretty good at this stuff. Well, again, I became part of this mantra that we need to train, we need to train, we need to train. We'd had this Stark incident on one of our ships that happened during my tour and the USS Stark, you know, lost 37 sailors because they took, you know, two Exocet missiles and, you know, they kept burning inside the ship, burned the aluminum and, you know, and frankly, you know, the ship suffered greatly, but a whole bunch of rules changed after that. And then the Samuel B. Roberts had happened. She'd been mine. So I said, okay, if I'm going to be the damage control assistant, 
you know, we're going to be well-trained like Sammy B was very well-trained. They didn't lose a soul. They saved their ship. They actually got engines back up. I mean, they're able to communicate and do things for a ship, you know, taking a mine on a, on a 4,000 ton ship. Incredible. But, you know, so my job was to make sure everybody's ready. So I run these drills. Well, just like Sammy B. Roberts happened, uh, I don't remember what time it was, but I don't think it was daylight. These things don't ever happen in daylight. So I would do surprise drills in the middle of the night which was one of the things we were supposed to do, because typically if you can do it from a sound sleep into your, you know, so as you check timing and ability to close all the hatches on a ship in a certain amount of time to keep it from you know, spreading fire or flooding. So I would run these drills in the middle of the night on a battle rhythm as we were preparing for our inspections, but just to get us ready. And after about third one of these drills, look, everybody gets crumpy, they get tired, they start sloughing off and the standard gets lower. And I just get really PO'd because repair two, which is supposedly the weaker, the weaker locker was, was kicking ass. And then I looked at repair three and, and these guys were kicking ass. We're pumping people up, but repair five should be my pr premier locker was just not getting better. Well, so I'm a damage control assistant. I'm normally in the engineering department, but I, I rolled out in this one drill and the repair five locker officer meets me in the, in the passageway. And he says, Hey, this is crap. I'm tired of coming here. Every time I come in here, these same headsets broken. This is effed up. And he's telling all this stuff. This is effed up. This is effed up. This is effed up. Well, unfortunately, I was also tired. And so I closed the locker door. It was just me, him, and a chief petty officer inside the locker. And I picked him up and I jacked him into the wall. And I just literally punched him. And, and you know, to the point is like, you know why this locker's effed up? It's because you're effed up. And I said, you know, this thing, and I'm just jacking this guy up. And of course the chief smartly closed the door and he stayed inside to watch the whole thing. Right. right. <laughs> classic chief move. Yeah. It was, it was classic. So I get all finished. We get all finished. He says, you're, you're effed. I'm going right to the captain right now. I said, yeah, fine. Whatever. You know, you're going to have to beat me to him. Right. So we both end up getting up there and captain comes up there and says, you know, and took us forever because all the hatches were closed in the ship. So we, got, so we both get up there and he gets in first. And he comes in and says, all right. And he sends me in. He goes, he goes, he goes what happened? He goes, I said, well, sir, you know, I, I, I hit a guy. And, you know, he says, he goes, what was going on? I told him the whole story. He said, all right. He goes, well, you know, I, I can't tolerate that. You can't be hitting your shipmates. And, you know, I'm going to have to restrict you to the ship. And he put me in hack for a little bit, which is house arrest and confinement to quarters, which is really, you know, it didn't matter. I was at sea anyway. So anyway, I go back in there and he gives me this letter and, uh, and I'm like, this is it. My career's over. I'm going to, you know, although deep down I could tell that he didn't really mind what I did, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but then I found out he fired the other guy and ultimately, I mean, he was relieved and the other guy really, because he ultimately believed that, you know, that was the problem. I just didn't handle it very well. So I did learn a little bit from that because, you know, I learned that you know, I really can't, you, you can't get physical, obviously, you know, now I'm back to my gunner's mate's arm, right? I'm not helping things if I'm doing blue on blue engagements. So yeah, that was my own error. I mean, he handled it in a way that I thought was, you know, I definitely thought long and hard about what was going on. I thought that my career was over and clearly your career wasn't over. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd never expected I was staying in the Navy. I mean, I was going to do my four years and get out like everybody else did, you know, and again, on that ship, while they had a tyrant for a commanding officer, the executive officer was one of the finest officers I've ever worked for. And in fact, when he went to command, he called me to be his department head. And it was one of the best ships I had ever been on in that tour. So, you know, one of the things I will tell you that is even when you find these environments out there where there's a tyrant, you're going to find people in there. So two things happened on Merrill. One is the bonding at the, at the lower level, the JO Protection Society really took over and you know, we had a very strong bond and we did things well because we set the standard ourselves. 
but you also have folks like the XO who were able to come in there and, and really be that leveling force. And we were very fortunate to have, at the time, it was Lieutenant Commander Hank Sanford, who's, who's since passed away, but he's been a lifelong mentor of mine. And frankly, the reason I'm still here, because I would have never stayed in the Navy after that tour, not because I didn't want to, I just didn't really think about it. That was the XO? Yes. That's a great story. I, you know, you mentioned the, the JO Protectionist Society. It's been a long time since I've heard a term like that. We in the Marines, we used to call it the LPA, the Lieutenant Protective Association. And those things are for real. Yeah. Well, those, yeah. those things are for real. In my life, those are the biggest core group of my friends were all the guys that I was lieutenants with. I became friends with other people in the military too, but those 30 lieutenants that I was serving with over the course of three or four years, some of my best friends in the world. Yes. I mean, to this day, I mean, you know, we still have a very tight, that, that ship stayed very tight for a long time. The CEO before him was, was pretty well liked. And when he left, a lot of people thought, oh, that's, you know, it's a shame because, you know, uh, we really would have liked to have gone into the combat situation with that first CO. Although I would tell you that the second CO was very competent and, you know, ultimately a guy you'd go, go, go fight with. You mentioned that you had a couple other non-punitive letters of caution. Any other lessons learned there that could resonate with junior leaders and help them learn? You know, one was it's just a stupid administrative thing. And uh, the third one was, you know, again, a little bit of a hothead moment. I have, I have a you know, I have a pretty long fuse, but when it goes, it goes. <laughs> we were out on a um, on the frigate. I forget exactly what we were doing, but I was the tactical action officer in combat. The XO was up in his cabin and the CO was on the bridge and we were doing what we call div tax, division tactics. So you're with other ships and you're maneuvering in formation and and it's a really big bridge and combat information team thing. You know, your your bridge you know, they'll say next signal is, you know, formation one, da, 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 da. And then in combat, you have this routine that says on execution of the signal, you will come right to this many degrees for five point five minutes and 20 seconds, then turn left to this course, you know, see, and the bridge is doing the same thing. And you, you listen to make sure that they're both the same. It's what keeps you from hitting each other in these maneuvers. And it's just always the way we did things. Well, I was about three minutes into the, this drill and I was kind of when I first started, like nobody was doing anything. I'm like, hey guys, come on, we gotta get going. This is this is you know because it's really fun when you do it. And th- and they were just kind of like, oh god, whatever. So we finally get into it, and the and the bridge wasn't asking for anything, which kind of bothered me, but I let it go. Well, the captain was on the bridge, and he said, uh, calls down to combat after we give all these reports, and they're doing just like we just like we told them. He gets all finished, and he says he calls down. He says, uh, TO captain, just to let you know, we don't need your help up here. We got a good firm control on things right here. Well, I just went through the roof because this is like, you know, it's in his instructions. Uh, we're doing it all. And I'm just like, I'm pissed because I just got everybody up on the governor. They're all looking at me. What do we do now, sir? You know? And I'm like, well, I said, so I called up the XO. I said, XO, this is the TAO. Uh, I just let you know, I relieved the watch in combat. Everybody on combat's been, I just called up CO, said he didn't want any information from here. So I relieved the whole watch. There's a silence on the phone for a second. And the XO says, who we called Father Maloney was his name, Steve Maloney, very calm Notre Dame guy. And he's, uh, Ron, I don't think you want to do that. That was a very tense moment with me. This was a new commanding officer, relatively new, but you know, obviously he went behind the scenes, talked to the captain, said, "Hey, look, box, I'll just relieve the watch." And so, you know, number one, no, no, I poisoned the well. So we had a little uh, discussion afterwards. You know, he came down and publicly said, "Okay, hey, when I said this, you know, I didn't mean it. You know, go back to doing it. That was my bad. You know, just be sensitive to the fact that you know it's a lot of information coming. At, well, okay, whatever." But ultimately, he brought me and he said, "Don't ever." countermand my authority, which I totally respect. And I think he did the right thing. I don't remember if I got a, if that was one of them or not, but that was one that stuck with me for a long time. 
but I did learn again that, you know, people have to contribute and it really bothers me when, you know, you're asked to do something, you do it, you get everybody up to speed and then you're, then you're, you get cut out underneath you. So, you know, when he went and did those things and I've had a couple episodes like that, I was very protective that people worked for me, you know, when I would tell them to do something and then they'd get countermanded at a higher level. And then, you know, that leaves you high and dry. And I would not sit idly when that happened. It's happened to me a couple of times. And it's just, you know, personal personality flaw of mine. Commander's always right. I could handle it better ways, but I tended to be, you know, pretty passionate about it. And I had another example like that. So, so these are things that, you know, you learn as you go. And sometimes, you know, when you're at sea for long periods of time and you're in these rotations, you don't sleep well and you, you, know, you just get grumpy over time. You kind of learn to look through people when they do this. So I, I think I was given a pass a couple of times, but you know, I, I would, uh, I'd be a little passionate. So I have an offshoot question from that. You know, the military has this funny way of revering Mavericks. In fact, we, we've made movies with fictional characters literally named Maverick, right? Well, at the same time, we're not overly tolerant of them. What does a Maverick in the surface warfare community look like? You know, I don't love the term. Uh, maybe I'm just thinking of Tom Cruise. I don't know what it is, but, but I think because I do think it's really good to have people that are looking at problems differently. And some, you know, so there's Mavericks, as you see them on television, you think about folks who are, you know, they kind of just pissed off all the time. And, you know, they tend to be really good at what they do. So people put up with the fact that they're pissed off all the time. And, you know, to me, you got to have to do two things. So if you can find that Maverick or that, that thinker who looks at problems differently or has a unique skill that they're really, really good at, but they've got some other personality disorder that kind of prevents them from being as effective as they can, you try to try to get their personality effect and, and, and you let them know. I think that's really the challenge for leaders for us is to kind of say, hey, find those people. They're, they're, they're so helpful in an organization because there's an old saying that's saying you know, two people think alike, somebody's not thinking. And having people like that, that that do tackle problems differently are really helpful for that team. You know, we talk a lot about diversity. We talk about it from a racial or gender sense, but Really, as you look at diversity that matters, it's diversity in thought, diversity in, in how you look at problems. And it really, it, it's culturally where you came from. I mean, you just find out that people think differently about different problems. You know, if you, and to me, that's, that's the challenge that leaders have is to find everybody and that they all have nuggets somewhere. There's very few people that are just completely useless to an organization. And so our challenge becomes, how do we find that, that maverick? And how do we find that? Because you should be very glad they're there. Uh, but at the same point, you can't, can't let them be derogatory to the organization or the command climate or whatever. So Maverick from thinking, I'm good with Maverick, with just somebody that wants to be just for Maverick's sake, eh, I'm not interested. I think it's more in, in the movies anyway. I've never really seen a lot of that. Yeah, I was, I was referring to the, the Maverick who's the different type of thinker. And I was alluding to the Tom Cruise character when I said we literally have, you know, fictional characters named Maverick. I don't think a week goes by where I don't say the quote, I'm just going to jam on the brakes and it'll fly right by. I'm not an aviator, so I don't even know if that move works. But the quote is legendary and goes to what you were saying, find people who think differently. That's how I've always associated a Maverick. If those people are producing good things for you because they're not fearful of, of repercussions of their risky behavior then how do we get everybody else to act like that, right? So you, you want people to think about it. So one of my jobs, I mean, again, I go back now in my job as the director of surface warfare. Uh, you know, I'm responsible for, you know, in the Pentagon to the CNO for all ships and radars and weapons and people and modernization and building ships and all the stuff that, you know, produces our surface fleet. And, you know, it came to me 
early that we were building a lot of big ships and we needed to start thinking about, you know, how do we, you know, we have a requirement for 104 large surface combatants, 52 small surface combatants, and no unmanned. And I used to walk around with my arms in an inverted triangle saying, hey, we're completely upside down. We're top heavy here. We need to shift this pyramid the other way. Well, so that was my overarching vision as a leader, right? So there's my priorities. Let's make the surface force a more distributed force that's going to be, you know, more difficult to, you know, if we can distribute it, then let's try to do this. And wow, watch what happens. You put that guidance out and now you've got these mavericks or these thinkers that will go figure it out. And, and we, we, we came up with, you know, this smaller frigate and we came up with this a very capable small frigate and a very, you know, a different high-low mix of unmanned, large unmanned and medium unmanned that now as a group are all kind of common in both their sensors, their combat systems or their weapons. And wow, I mean, the flexibility as we look at wargaming on this is, is off the charts. So, you know, again, it starts with a little bit of ideas, fuel thrown on it by maverick thinkers. And again, you know, I just sit back and watch it happen at that point. And again, creating that environment where people aren't afraid to come in and, and say, well, you know, we wrote this paper about this a long time ago. Bring it up. Let's talk about it. What did it say? To me, that's the exciting part about the next career when you're, out, when you're not driving ships or, or tanks or, or planes. And, and that's what's kept me motivated in the Pentagon. Yeah, you mentioned the the frigate, and I find that to be fascinating. What what rank is going to command the new small frigate? The frigate right now will be kind of like so we have large surface combatants and we have small surface combatants. You know, our large surface combatants are going to be our destroyers and cruisers, and right now our small surface combatant is only the littoral combat ship, uh, again frigate sized ship, and those are all commanded by O fives commanders. As you start looking, you know, maybe down the road. We're still going to probably have those ships because they're going to be so capable still, but just smaller. They're probably still going to be commanders. And then you'll have your largest ships, either DDG Flight 3s or cruisers, are going to be commanded at, by a major commander, air warfare commander at the 06 level. But we do have this kind of, you know, this question that's kind of looming as to, you know, making sure we manage command and give opportunity at a lower level. Um, you know, so I, I would be maybe not at the frigate level, but certainly... I think, you know, considering littoral combat ship as being maybe lieutenant commander command in the future is something we should think about. But again, we'll, you know, it really goes a little bit to how you distribute and make sure that you can give people command opportunity, it, 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 enough opportunity to, to make it worthwhile to, uh, and, and then also create these leaders that have multiple command opportunities that can, can learn because command is such a learning experience. Yeah. I would imagine that if some of those ships got to be commanded by lieutenant commanders, well, that would be one of the most exciting opportunities in the, the surface warfare fleet. I couldn't imagine anything more exciting than taking command at a lieutenant commander level. Well, I know as people hear this, they're probably saying, hey, there's no way that's going to happen. I, I don't know. We'll see what happens. But you know, I, I think we're going to retain an opportunity somewhere for lieutenant commander command. I don't know where that'll be. But you know, our minesweepers are going away and our patrol craft at the lieutenant level are going away. So I, I, we've got to think about that. There's that old saying, there but for the grace of God walk eyed or something like that. Did you ever see something happen where you said, thank God that wasn't me and turned it into a formative experience that you applied in the future? Well, yeah, actually, you know, it's funny when I talk about that Loran Sea and that navigation thing, that's exactly what I was thinking when I went through there. I said, I knew that that's what he'd done because I had done that very thing before. And if that had happened to me, I, my, I wouldn't be here today, probably. So now I go fast forward. So what did I learn from that? You're going to love this one, I think, because uh, I didn't think about it till I, till I started thinking about this type of question. And I said... You know, what did I really learn? Well, you know, night or 2002. Now this is post coal bombing, post 9/11. You know, a really 
anti-terrorist boxer stance, right? I'd just taken command in the Gulf. I'd been there for about maybe a couple months, month, month or so. And we're just leaving the Gulf after the ship had been in there for three, four months. And we're getting our first real port visit in the Seychelles. You know, I'm headed down now from this just miserable summer in the Gulf where it's 120 degrees and, and I'm headed down to the Seychelles. And we get to the Seychelles and it poured rain. The first day we were there, it just poured and everybody was so happy, you know, to see rain and, and not dirt and, <laughs> and heat. We pull into this port. We actually went into anchor. We go in, drop the anchor. Everybody can't wait to get off the ship. And sure enough, you know, ding, 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 Liberty call, you know, sailors, woof, one way off the sail. Everybody's getting out of there. Now, the Seychelles is 102 islands at low tide. So once they leave that brow, and we don't have cell phones back then, you know, you got a couple, but you're not sure if they work in Seychelles. I don't even have, you know, nothing worked. So people just go and you're in three sections. So one third of the ship stays on the ship and the two other, you know, they stay there. And the next day, section two comes on, section three. So you stay three days. So... Everybody leaves, maybe about an hour later, I'm finally sitting down, relaxing after we'd pulled into this port and, and my navigator and my operations officer walk into my stateroom and they say, Captain, we got some bad news. I said, well, what's the bad news? Sir, we made a mistake and uh, you're supposed to be from here. We got to be at the Suez Canal entrance on whatever day, but you know, we got the you know, it's at 12, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, midnight. And they, they were 24 hours off. They, you know, they, they got it wrong. So we had one day less to get there, which meant we had one day less in the Seychelles. And so now I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, well, first of all, you know, and, and they both came in, like, they were sure I was going to fire them. They're like, sir, you know, obviously this is just egregious. And, you know, I'm like, what, what is wrong with you people? I don't have another nav. I'm not going to get one in the Seychelles. We got to figure out what we're going to do here. Cause my choices are either leave half the crew or you know, try to get the people that weren't going to show up on that last day or wait for them or whatever. I mean, there's, there's just all kinds of, you know, issues. I said, okay, so our choices are what? What are we going to do now? Well, if we go faster, we use up too much fuel and we'll run out of fuel. And we, we don't have an oiler. So that's one problem. So you got a fuel constraint. You've got a time constraint. You've got, can your engines even maintain a certain amount of speed for a long period of time, you know, running at a higher speed? So we do all the calculations and we said, look, this is going to be a problem. So I said, okay, well, at the time, the Horn of Africa, to get back, you have to go around through the Horn of Africa, right by Yemen again, where coal got hit. And, and we didn't want to pull in for fuel anywhere for that very reason. So I said, okay, start talking to me about what we can trim off our track here. Well, they had us going all the way around the Horn of Africa. There's an island out there called Socotra Island. And Socotra Island is really, from Socotra Island inward, is really pirate country. No kidding. This is where all the piracy is going on. There's a lot of terrorist activity. The general guidance was stay out of that area, even though you have plenty of room to go through there. And I was like, okay, what do we, what happens if we cut off this, you know, we cut off the Sitotra Island. Uh, what does that do for us? They're like, oh, let me go run it. We run it. We cut off 240 miles off the track, but they said, sir, if, you know, to go. And I said, well, let's hug, hug, how close can we get? They said, well, 12 point, 12 miles is the international water limit. You know, give me 12 to 15 miles in there. He said, well, sir, that's kind of where the pirates might be hanging out. I said, well, do we have any cases where a pirate has tried to take over a destroyer? I don't think so. Let's, you know, I'm okay with that. So let's go through there. So now it became, hey, let's maybe we can, the Liberty call on the last day was always at midnight. So we could get underway early in the morning. How soon can we get the port ops there to get us underway and the pilot on board, et cetera, to get us out of the port, et cetera. You know, it started becoming this thing that we all just said, okay, this, this is a negative. This is tough. 
Well, fast forward, we ended up getting there. Oh, and by the way, the other caveat was I did need some fuel. So I called, you know, some people that I knew, in fact, working with now in the Pentagon. Uh, and I said, hey, I need you to, I really need a fuel hit here if I can get one. And they're like, okay, we can delay this other oiler in time to meet you on the way, which was like, you know, I was always the last guy that always worried about the carriers and everybody else. And, but, you know, a single destroyer, they're like, yeah, you're on your own. So, you know, bottom line is, is it, this became kind of a, a rallying moment. And I'll tell you what, I mean, the engineers, they responded, hey, we need to make this number of knots for this many days. Can you do it? Oh, no problem, sir. We can do that. We do that all the time. Of course, they beat their metric. Then I said, hey, I need to cut this many off the track. Navigator met their metric. I need to call port ops here and get these guys out early. You met their metric. You know, you just create this negative and turn it into a positive. And it all went back to kind of how I thought about, you know, that one navigator and officer that got treated, you know, when I was an ensign. And fast forward, it was not an option to fire anybody. It was not an option to fail. It was, not, it was an option to learn and train. And ultimately, I'd, I'd argue that it turned out okay. Did that moment shape any tough or important decisions that you made later on in your years as a flag officer? Well, there's a lot of times like, you know, you find yourself as a senior person, you know, somebody working for you somewhere along the line with all the best of intentions, do something that would end up making your job harder. And you never knew what it was going to be. It happens all the time. You know, I would was very clear to differentiate those were who were who were trying and failed versus those who were just failing because they didn't care or you know and, and almost never I can't even think of a time where someone made an intentional error that really screwed me over. You know, again, it, it, people tend to do things. You know, there's a risk reward. A lot of times, I would I would let people fail. Sometimes it would you know come back to bite me. But again, that's part of the cost of, of doing business is that if you're going to create those environments, you don't get great success with people, you know, not giving them any room to, to make mistakes. You took the negative and you just went to each one of your division heads and said, you know, what can we do to fix this problem? Those are setting the conditions for success for junior leaders to actually solve problems. And I'll bet you, you created three or four moments in leadership for those officers that went on and probably chiefs too, and applied that lesson learned further on in their command too. Yeah, they were, I mean, they're both, I mean, to this day, I mean, that whole, that whole group of department heads all has made a major command at least, which is unheard of, of a, most ships, you know, you get maybe just the fact that a lot of them would still stay in, but all those department heads I had, every one of them stuck around, made 06 and major command and some are, you know, flag eligible at this point. So I'm, and to me, that's the most important metric of, uh, I look at, you know, what I have done, because I know they're also mentoring people. So it's this kind of this long blue line of, of surface warfare officers that goes down all the way to, you know, new academy folks that's, you know, somehow, you know, they don't know me, but they know the folks that have worked for me and so on and so on. And to me, you know, that's what makes, you know, to me, the, the most exciting part about when I, when I do leave the Navy, I'll, I'll always know that there's those folks out there it'll hurt when I stop knowing who they are. I'm starting to feel that myself. It's, I, I just don't recognize the names anymore and I don't know the people anymore. And I'm definitely in touch with that emotion. I've made that point so many times to people that have been in commands that I've been in, which is one decision as a leader can leave a 60 year legacy because, and I would tell us to Lieutenant, you may do something from a leadership perspective, take a decision on something that makes an impact on a young corporal. And then that young corporal stays in for 20 or 30 years and becomes a sergeant major. And that sergeant major emulates that decision that he saw a young lieutenant take. And it became a moment, a crystallizing moment in his career. And he makes an impact on a PFC or a corporal. You can leave a 60-year legacy with a decision 
at any moment in your career. And I think that's a, that's a pretty powerful thing to keep your hands on when you think about leaving a legacy for people. No question. I've talked to some other people in the past about the difference between battlefield courage and moral courage. And I'm wondering if there was ever a moment when you risked your career with a decision that required moral courage. You know, I'm, I'm wondering if it's because I didn't show any or <laughs> I can't think of any, but, uh, you know, that was, a, that was a tough one for me. I mean, I think that that kind of is, I mean, I have little examples all the way. I mean, I've, I've had cases inside the Pentagon working for senior leaders, you know, it, you know, for example, not security violations per se, because we never actually got there. But, you know, there were times when someone would say, hey, just do this and I'm going to do this. And I'm like, uh, no, sir, we're not doing that. That's just, you know. And I've had other folks come to me saying, hey, sir, you know, so-and-so asked me to do this. And I'm like, okay, that's my job. Let me, let me take care of that. And so that's something that, you know, that I've, I've encountered. You get to this point somewhere uh, and, you know, we all hope it doesn't happen to us, but I'm, I'm sure I could see it happening is this, is where you kind of lose humility or you lose the ability to, to really understand, you know, like the rules don't apply to you or, and that's been my experience is that, you know, the, the moral courage I may have shown is, is like keeping somebody, getting them back online to some standard or something they shouldn't be doing and let them know. I, I know another great example is, it's not a great example, it's, it's an example, but, you know, I had one case where, you know, I knew there was a, a senior leader that was basically telling one of his people, and this was a civilian, you know, they were going to go to this event and they had one of my guys coming by to pick them up. And, you know, it's one of those things where I said, hey, no, you're not picking that person up. And I'd call them up and say, look, at, you know, you, you're crossing a line here of ethics. You may not know it, but make no mistake, they know it now. And if you do this, you're going to fail yourself. And so, you know, just from a professional standpoint in the Pentagon more than, I mean, certainly it's, it's fleet wide. I mean, you know, trust is the coin of the realm. And in the Pentagon, the minute someone senses that you don't have it or, you, or you're going to turn the other way on, a, on, a, on an issue, I'll tell you, people will take advantage of it. And it's to me, and I don't see it. I'm just telling you, it's not something I see often um, because honestly, one of the things that keeps me around is the quality of men and women I get to work with. And this, you know, it's just, I mean, I feel inadequate when I look left and right at me and see the quality of the men and women I get to work with every day. It's just eye-watering. I mean, you know, the, the people who are working for you, what, they, what they've done and what they'll do for you and the people working right or left with you, you know, you think you're working hard and they're, they're doing more than you are. And then you look above and, and, you know, they've done it. And so it's, to me, something that it's just very rewarding as we all get later in our careers and, you, you know, you wonder if you're going to continue to have that because I've, I've heard both sides of it. I heard, you know, yeah, it's great on the outside, everything's good, but you know, you don't have this camaraderie and this kind of brotherhood and sisterhood that we have and what we do. You've got so much experience and you've seen so much in the Navy. Can you think of a, a trait that derails leaders or causes them to fail by reflecting back on your 30 or 40 years of experience? I guess if you get too separated from reality. So as you go up, you know, I've seen folks that, you know, become a CEO of a ship and all of a sudden, you know, the rules don't apply. Or I've seen folks that at a senior level, uh, they turn the other way. I, I, you know, I alluded to a couple of them there, but I mean, it's just, it's a general quality. I mean, if, even at a lower level, but I think commands that first place where you realize that you have to be careful because people want to want to do good things for you. And, and you just got to make sure that you're not doing it in a way that is unethical or inappropriate or whatever. And so you can't misconstrue those things. And you certainly, as a leader, it's incumbent upon you to keep that fair playing field everywhere. Uh, so as I think about the people that I know that failed along the way, it's this hubris, humility, and how you keep it is 
well, it's easy in the Pentagon because, you know, because, <laughs> uh, you know, but in command or in those jobs where you're kind of really, you know, look, look they put you on a pedestal out there. If you're a commanding officer or you're a strike group commander uh, in the Pentagon, you know, less so on a staff, but still, you know, you're, you're kind of a, a big deal. And if you, you know, at least to other people, you know, and yet I come home and I come in the door and my wife, you know, uh, she, she keeps us humble. She keeps me humble. My kids keep me humble. My, my family keeps my brothers, you know, I have a brother who's a Marine. He was a enlisted Marine and I have a twin brother who was a, a, a corpsman. So we span the spectrum of Marine corpsman who was kind of in both camps and then uh, me at the other end. And they're not going to let you get too big for your britches. You know, it's just so, but so not everybody has that. Some people, if, if your personality is more introverted or, or aloof, you could be uh, more affected. So everyone recalls that early beach invasion scene from the Saving Private Ryan movie, uh, when the Tom Hanks character keeps sending the groups of three around to charge the machine gun nests, and he sees them slain in his little mirror that he's using to look around the corner. And I'm wondering if there was a singular moment in your career where you fully realized the gravity of your command and influence and responsibility. So when I took command in 2002, in the Gulf. I flew out there. This was, again, this was post-Gulf War One. We had sanctions on the uh, Iraqis. And, you know, it was literally a two or three day turnover. You fly out on this, you know, on the Desert Duck, which is a big H3 out there. And, you know, you drop in there and, and, you know, four days later, you know, you're in command. And it's like, you know, there's so much to learn. At the time, we were boarding Iraqi vessels to uh, inspect them for contraband that were counter to the UN sanctions that said you can't have war materials, you can't have oil, you can't sell your oil. But at the same time, Saddam Hussein was telling people, you know, to get on these boats, literally with a gun to their head, and try to sell his oil somewhere on the black market. So they would come out of Iraq, and we were sitting there at twelve point one mile mark, and they try to, you know, either outrun us or go along the coast at night, you know, thinking we couldn't see him or whatever. And they would, you know, try to dip into Iranians. Well, if they, the Iranians might get them, but we might get them. Either way, they'd lose their oil. So the problem with boarding these vessels was that when you got aboard these ships, a lot of them were not seaworthy. So what happened was, you know, you put a boarding team on board and they'd go aboard to kind of go down and check and, and sound the tanks to see if they had fuel in them or not. And we had situations where we lost sailors because those ships ended up sinking and, and our sailors died. So my first instance was literally the second day I had command. I took command in Bahrain. We went back up, got in, into this area, and we started boarding all these ships. We did 300 boardings that deployment, 323, I think it was. And you're starting at five o'clock in the morning and you're ending at sunset and it's sweaty and you're climbing the side of things. And you're carrying all this gear. And it's just, it's this draining. Well, right in the middle of the day and one day, we sent our team over and uh, they said, hey, sir, uh, the captain or the master on this ship uh, says he's having a heart attack. So I'm like, okay, now I am in command. Like, what do we do here? Because I have a law that requires me, international law requires that I, I assist mariners in distress. And then I have this obligation to protect my crew. What if he's booby trapped? What if he's, you know, what if he's got an IED on board? What if we bring him over in a helicopter and you know, whatever? Should, can I even get this guy off of there? What, so, so all these things are going through my mind, protection of my crew, taking care of this guy having a heart attack. So I have a medical person on the team. I said, I said, hey, is this guy faking us now, sir? He's, he's got a heart attack. I checked his vitals. He's, he needs to be seen right away or he's, he may not make it. So I said, okay, well, what do we can do? So I got everybody together quickly. We have a helicopter that, was, that we always have overseeing our boarding team as an overwatch. 
in case they go south. So I said, okay, get the helicopter pilot over here. I want to talk to him face to face. Well, who walks aboard but a guy named Dana Gordon. Dana Gordon and I were on our first, on that frigate back together with the great CO I was telling you about. And, you know, instant trust. So I'm like, Dana, <laughs> great to see you, brother, man. How you been? You know, hey, got work to do here. Do you think you can get aboard? Because, you know, we don't want to fly if he's going to have stuff flying all over, like the rust and stuff could, you know, fought out the aircraft. And and so all these things going there. I said, Dana, can you get on board? And Dana says, you know, yeah, sir, I think I get on board. That's nothing look proud. That's no problem. I get to get this guy on board, drop a basket down, get the guy on. I said, okay, all right. So we're going to do that. So sure enough, we go drop this guy in the basket. You know, I'm inspecting a guy with a heart attack to see if he's got any, you know, IDs on board. <laughs> so anyway, we go through all this. We realize it's not a ploy. We get him on board. Everything's fine. We get him on board. Then we got to figure out where we're going to take this guy. Now I got him you know, who's going to take this guy? The Kuwaitis wouldn't take him because they just tried to overrun the country. And now it's an international thing. So, so we got him back aboard, but it just hit me very, very quickly. It's like, you know, no one teaches you for this stuff. You know, there's no rule book. There's no, uh, we just kind of muddled our way through it. And, and ultimately that's what, that's what command's about. It's about, there's some time where you can turn and there's nobody else to make the call. You have to decide, you know, what, what are you going to do? Again, I use the advice of good people I trusted. The executive officer on that ship turned out was also my roommate, just pure coincidence that he was, it turns out he was my, so, so I trusted his expertise. I trusted this, this guy from a previous tour and as luck would have it, we did the right thing and, and the guy lived and everything was fine. But, you know, again, just, it, it was, I was like, you know, what the heck's going on? Here I am, you know, two days, what's the rest of this command tour going to be like? Right. So, so I think that's where it really hit me. And that was like, I think day two. One of your biggest commands was carrier strike group three when you were on the john stennis i mean at that point you're a two-star admiral yeah i was a one-star i made two-star while i was out there so you've got heavy hitting commanders captains reporting to you what were some of the leadership traits and principles that you saw them exhibit in their roles as your subordinate commanders that made you proud so let me just for everybody that doesn't understand as a strike group commander i'm a one-star made two-star you have my major commanders are the carrier CO, who's an 06, has command of the aircraft carrier. And then I have the air wing commander, the CAG, the carrier air group air wing commander, who owns the 78 aircraft that are on board, helicopters, fighters, COD aircraft. Air, and then I've got a Commodore who owns kind of the ships out there. And then I've got a cruiser CO, who's the commanding officer of the cruiser, is a major commander who does the air, air warfare commander. So those are kind of the big four. And... You know, I actually had what I called, uh, I created those three levels of command. I had, I had, I called the, um, I had kind of the, the ivory tower, if you will, which is the, you know, the people who think, you know, your decisions, everybody knows what you do. And, you know, so it's kind of the ivory tower that the folks, I call them the war fighting commanders. So I brought in everybody, including my chief of staff, all the other O6s, like the XO of the carrier, my intelligence officer, my public affairs officer. I called them my war fighting commanders, my JAG. And so they became kind of this pool of people that kind of made that decision. It's the first P in PRC, priorities, risk, and communication. So the next level down were what I called the warfighting directors. And those were the commanding officers. That's the 06 level. So this is the commanding officer of the seven or eight squadrons. Each squadron has their own commanding officer. Each ship has their own commanding officer. Each. Uh, so that's kind of the, the, the warfighting directors. And they are the most influential for the next level down, which I called the tactical warfighters, which to me is the most critical part of, and those are the pilots in command of the aircraft, the tactical action officers on the ships, 
the officers of the deck on the bridge. If we're going to have an instance of something happen, interface with the adversary, that's where it's going to happen. So we spent a lot of time with our job at the very top was to create the vision. You know, our job, and it wasn't my vision. I was the decider when we couldn't do it. But uh, So we would do that. Incredible of the discussions we had in determining what it is we valued most. And the second level was, you know, our challenge was coming out of this meeting and communicating to the directors that may or may not have been in the meeting, which I said, get as many as you can in that tight space on the carrier, but, you know, and then somewhere out on the ships, you're not going to be in there. So translating that vision through this incredibly critical, influential layer of the warfighting directors, they're not commanding officers. I didn't I call them warfighting directors because they were communicating warfighting intent, not, you know, what's my readiness, my aircraft, is the ship, you know, was it meeting all its metrics? This is about warfighting. And then that would translate to every day we would end up with, okay, what is our final of this vision? What is what gets to the warfighter? And that tactical warfighter level, I wrote every night in my night orders, I would codify that discussion at the high level. This is how you translate vision to that deck plate tactical leader. This is the key part of leadership and command is to ensure that you know, getting this vision and then communicating it so that they can read it back to you. And so I would actually write in my orders every single night to the tactical warfighter. This is from me. And, and they could read whatever else were in those orders. But I would ask them as I would walk around the ship. It became a joke. Hey, everyone's going to ask you what the tactical warfighter direction is tonight. You know, and so, so that's what I did. I would walk around the ship or the squadrons, the ready rooms. When I'd go over to other ships, I would ask these questions. Well, I'll just tell you one brief story on how what I was most proud of. And this is one day I was walking around the ship and I remember we're out in the South China Sea. We just entered in and the task for the day was my number one priority was find the submarine. All right. Find the submarine was the task. And I said, if you find the submarine, then find this guy. And then if you find him, then do this. So I had like A, B, C, right? Those are my priorities. Find the submarine. Simple, clean. Communicated it put it on my one pager that I scanned everybody on the ship, goes out to everybody, find the submarine. So I'm walking and every day I would go come up to my flag bridge and I would walk through the handler. The handler on aircraft carrier is a guy that's been around forever. And his job is to basically make that flight deck work. You know, these guys, you know, aviation boats mate, multiple years of experience, gets these 17 year old, 18 year old, 20 year old kids on this flight deck moving in the symphony that makes it all work. I don't know how it happens. So I always walk by, I poke my head into handler, say, hey, how are we doing today? Oh, sir, it's great. Everything's good. Everything's great. Good. Have a great day. Okay, super. I walked in and I just, out of curiosity, I stopped and said, hey, handler, do you ever see, you know, my tactical directions to the tactical warfighter? And he pointed over to a thing and said, yes, sir, I post it there every day. And the first thing we do every day out on that flight deck is we go through this with all my, I said, really? You read this to the, everybody in the deck plate? Like these kids, you know, they're just launching recovering aircraft. Sir, every day. And you know what somebody said to me today? He said, hey, sir, if it's number one mission is to find the submarine, don't you think we should give the priority to the helicopters that, you know, rather than the, the fighters and so that we can get them in and get them back out on station as soon as possible? Now, if you're an aircraft carrier, a helicopter is the last person you think about, or the last first ones to take off, the last ones to land because they can stay up. Fighters got to, you know, it's much more difficult to get jets you know mm -hmm. uh, aboard and uh, aboard the ship so sure enough that happens and boy these helicopters come in they're refueling they're getting right back out there so they can do their mission and then i walk down the hall uh, passageway and i see um, 
I walk into the ready room for the helicopter squadron and they are high-fiving each other. Hey, because they get told usually to sit in a pattern forever, waiting for a time to get in between the fighters. And they were on cloud nine. But, you know, what had occurred to me is that through no effort of my personal <laughs> effort on my part, the, the, the organization had completely transformed what they thought was important and how it was communicated. And, and to me, that's the thing that made me the most proud. I was so proud of the fact that, you know, this team had just produced this kind of, you know, muscle memory of just how we're doing business. And, 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 and it was far more than anything I ever could have imagined. And it, again, it was just this kind of mantra, this muscle memory, this rhythm, this, this common thing. And, and, and the other piece that I was proud of is I had this very open structure of, in fact, people advised me against it. When I went out there, I said, hey, I want to make sure every command from my staff you know, when Bravo, Alpha Bravo, or the commanding officer of the, or the carrier strike commander gets on there and he says, you know, it's like speaking from God, you know, it's like everything comes down and no one questions it. And I said, no, 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 we need to, we need to question it. If it doesn't make sense, we need to question it. And that's, so we started that in our workups many months before. And when I first put it out, I remember one of my LDOs, limited duty officers came up to me and he said, sir, that's a bad idea. You're in command. You need to command. You don't ask people what you need to do. You don't, you know, I said, wait a minute. I said, just hang with me there, shipmate. We'll get through this. And so we, we, we added this little phrase, which made a huge difference. Every command we went out, I said, I want it to end with the term, do you agree? Does that make sense? And I said, let's just see what happens. And we talked about it. I said, I want feedback. I'd write it, but you know, oh, yes, sir. And I used to go out to all the ships and I'd say, hey, you know, is the command here ever giving you a guidance that, you know, you didn't think was right? Oh no, sir! No, you you guys are always right. That's great, great. <laughs> you know, but but ultimately, when you got through it, I said, well, "Look, I, I'm going to put this on you. If if I'm giving you an order that doesn't make sense, I expect you. I demand that you kind of tell me why you disagree. Because again, it's one of those that's effed up moments. Either one of us is not right. Either I'm not. I don't understand why what I'm telling you isn't is effed up, or you don't understand why I think it's not. Both of which needs to be resolved." So again, this just kept happening. And, and I'll tell you, it was not pretty. It was, at first people, you know, when you ask them, what's, does that make sense? No, it didn't make sense. And then you start hearing the bad news and it was, it was tough to hear like a stupid stuff we were doing. You know, I had lieutenants up there telling me, he said, Hey, why are you sending us alongside first when we're the furthest ones? You're going to, you know, stupid stuff that was easy to fix if we knew about it. And that kept happening. And so, so that to me just created this environment that, Hey, you know, we want to hear your feedback, create the environment of trust, you know, bite your tongue because it does hurt to hear. And uh, so to me, that's, that was one of the keys that made that all work. I think that's a great point for young leaders to, to hear and to synthesize, which is there's a difference between being in the heat of battle and there's bullets flying and you're not having the time to, to ask questions and, and ask this makes sense. But as a leader at any level, to include an admiral, to be, if you have the time to ask people, do you agree with this and does it make sense? you really create an environment of teamwork that will do nothing but improve the efficiency and effectiveness of the unit that you're leading and help develop subordinate leaders. I think that's such a fantastic piece of advice to give that you just gave to junior leaders, which is if you have the time and the ability to ask others, do you agree? And does that make sense? I think people will be shocked at how much they learn just by asking that simple question. Yeah. Like I said, it was when it first started happening, 
one when I when I put it out and I was listening in my cabin. I would listen in my in the in the admiral's cabin. I would listen to the uh, the, the conversations on the different circuits, and I'd hear the, the orders go out, and it just warmed my heart when I heard him, heard him say, uh, "Do you agree? Break to the unit, right?" And the unit would answer. They'd say, uh, "No, sir, that doesn't make sense uh, because of this, this, this." And then I would pick up mine in my cabin and I would answer back and I would say, hey, hey that is great feedback, Lieutenant so-and-so. And in one particular case, I recognized the person's name, which was you know, just luck. And I said, hey, that, you know, Katie, that is exactly the feedback I'm looking for here. I said, I can't imagine why we wouldn't take that, but we're going to come back out here in a minute and with uh, updated instructions based on that feedback. And for everybody, that's what I'm looking for. We all will get better when we know that something doesn't make sense. And I trust all of you to let me know when you see that happening. Well, like I said, the wheels came off. The, I was amazed at the number of things we weren't doing well. And to the point where people were getting pissed off and saying, sorry, yeah, stop doing that. We wrote it out. By far, that made the most difference. You know, a lot of people have strong opinions on what they want to do. A lot of it is about just making sure they understand why what they want to do isn't going to work. Or at least at some point you can say, okay, I hear you. I appreciate that feedback, but that's not what we're going to do because here's da da da. And um, but but they're so rare. People it still wasn't enough. If you, you know, the more you can do that, the better. And you compare and contrast that against the story that you began the interview with. If your CEO on the Merrill fired people for being out of plot and completely crushed that trusting communication channel to his detriment, and what you just described is the exact opposite of that. Well, again, and that, and that's a little bit of this exercise, you know, of going through thinking about moments. Of the, you know, I didn't really think about these things until, you know, you put it in this context. You know, you never really think about how you develop whatever skills you may or may not have. Obviously, something worked along the way, or at least somebody thought what I did was valuable. But, you know, how did I get there? I don't know. But this is a this this, this podcast has been very interesting and a little bit of a journey of discovery for me to figure out what those things were. Because, you know, and I challenge anybody listening here to really start doing that now while you still have more time to take advantage of it because, you know, I think these are truly things that do make us unique along the way. Thanks for saying that. That's one, one of the things that really excites me about this project is, is hearing things like that. So when you and I first met, we, we discovered pretty quickly that we share a common interest in the battle of Lady Gulf and um, the story of Captain Ernest Evans. So my question is, what does the Navy have to do to imbue the fighting spirit that was so honorably described in the last of the tin can sailors in Neptune's Inferno. You know, it's for whatever reason, I feel like the military gets asked this a lot lately. First of all, I believe the fighting spirit is there now. I have only seen it probably get better over time. And as I think about, you know, what happened at Abbey Gate there just in Afghanistan, you think about this. This is Marines and yet Navy and Army of the 13 who died, but several who didn't know if today that was going to be their day or not. But they knew there was a threat. They knew there was that it was their mission to try to keep people protected for the mission, keep innocent civilians protected. And when things, I mean, eye-watering, if you're not inspired by the work that they did and the things that, that happened and, you know, before, during, and after. And, you know, as I think back to Ernest Evans and, you know, here's a plug for that former CEO of the USS Samuel B. Roberts that got mined is is somebody who I, I who may end up listening, uh, Captain Paul Wren, who's, who's, who's a friend and we, we, we spent a lot of time talking about these things. So I'll throw in Ernest Evans, who is uh, Johnston, but also Captain Copeland, who was on the USS Sammy B. Roberts. Uh, and that's kind of my link to Sammy B. Roberts that I, I kind of told you I had a, 
Uh, I feel a strong link to those two ships. And in fact, I named a conference room at the Surface Warfare Directorate at the Pentagon called the Copeland Evans Room after Copeland and Evans, the CEOs of the Johnston and Sammy B. Roberts. But I think, you know, in their day, you know, think about how they got to where they were. You know, pre-Pearl Harbor, they were kind of, you know, really not too dissimilar how we were now. There were some things going on, but, you know, our nation wasn't at risk. And, you know, there was this kind of, you know, and then all of a sudden Pearl happened. Pearl Harbor happened. And then they saw ships go down. They saw friends die. And they saw, you know, the, the very existence of their country is, is at risk. And that's imbued in America. And because Marines are Americans and soldiers are Americans and sailors are Americans, this is, you know, we, we have a culture that, that just understands this is what we do. And we revere those who sacrifice for their country more than any other country you go anywhere in the world. You, know, you walk to Arlington Cemetery or you, or you see how thousands of people line the streets for these, these heroes who gave their lives for freedom. And you can't but be inspired, but you can't also ignore the fact of the impact of the next generation that this continues to have. So as I have seen, you know, my little teeny piece of this, I don't have anywhere near the, the, the combat experiences. Most of the people who've done your podcast, and I told you that was, you know, I, I'm not sure I qualified if that was what you were looking for, but in my limited combat experience, which was very limited and pales in comparison to any of these other things, I got to see firsthand what people do when they're in a combat environment, a little piece of it. And I guarantee you, they would have done whatever it took to do whatever they needed to do if it meant laying down their life. And I don't think that's anything we ever have to worry about for a very long time. And, uh, you know, I keep hearing about, you know, invariably, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk out there about, oh, we're getting soft and we're becoming this and that. You know what? Don't tell those families of those 13 shipmates we lost in Afghanistan. Don't tell those, you know, numerous examples through history. It's going to happen. You know, it may not happen. You know, we have to prepare people for it, though, because the other thing you take out of those, you know, last stand of the tin can sailor or, or Neptune's Revenge is just the absolute horror of uh, the brutality of what it was like around Leyte Gulf and Guadalcanal. And, you know, you can't read you know, letters from Iwo Jima or any of those and not just see the complete hell that is, is war. And so I think it's important that we don't, you know, as war becomes something you don't see in the eyeballs of the enemy as much these days due to the distance, but somebody's going to see it somewhere. And ultimately, it's just as awful. It's just as, and therefore, it's very important that we continue to keep the peace. You talked about capabilities, and I know the Navy and, and all the services, there's no shortage of real capabilities. And the question is, you just kind of answered it, but I'm going to use it to set up my next question, which is, you know, we have all these real capabilities, but are our leaders capable of fighting? And I want to hear what you think your thoughts are on what do young leaders have to do to train and lead crews to prepare themselves to fight like those destroyers and those destroyer escorts of Taffy 3 in the Leyte Gulf? Because that, that was brutal, brutal combat crews decimated, what can young leaders do to prepare themselves for the Abbey Gate or Leyte Gulf? Again, I think in my experience, I think the best thing you can do is prepare as best you can to the tactics and the procedures that you will fall back on when you are scared or when you are, or when, you know, you see something horrible happen to a a shipmate or a or a fellow uh, soldier soldier airman marine, you know, it's just 
I don't think there's any way to really train for it other than to think about it. I, I think it's important to read about things like that. To see, I mean, if you're not going to experience, you have to try to. I think we see a little bit in the movies, but I think I've found that, you know, books to me are more descriptive because you really get inside of how they're thinking about it. And I think you need to really take it personally on board and think about it. I know that for me, one of those moments came when Cole got bombed. I was getting ready to go out and be a uh, commanding officer of a ship just like it. When I see Cole and see the hole there and see the sailors that that perished that day, you know, I knew where it happened, what it looked like. I, you know, I could, I could see where they were living, where the flooded, where the, you know, all the things that I read about, you know, I've spent time talking to Kirk Lippold, who was the commanding officer of Cole. We actually hear him at SWAS. He comes up to the school and actually talks through that as does Captain Wren on, on, uh, from Samuel B. Roberts in the mining. And, you know, just prepare mentally for those things that could happen and train diligently and with purpose and try to, as you get a lot of things pulling at you, you know, again, your job as commanding officer, priorities, risk, and communications. If your priorities are getting through the next inspection, the administrative inspection at the expense of warfighting, then where are you taking risk? You're taking risk on the potential backs of your crew or the lives of your crew, in my view. And so that's kind of and that, again, was in my command philosophy. You will train. That is my priority is to train and be ready to fight, be ready when it happens. And so I, I don't know any other way other than, uh, you know, get it to its, its muscle memory, prepare people as best you can, and talk through those very difficult, extreme events that could happen. I think you're absolutely right. That's a great way to wrap up because what you said about reading and when I read Last of Tin Can Sailors, I found myself imagining what it must have been like to be on one of those destroyer destroyer escorts where shells were just raining down through the decks into the lower holds and the water rushing in and the fires. And, and I thought to myself, I hope I would have acted with the same amount of bravery as some of those people that I read the, the accounts of their, you know, heroic actions on those ships in that battle. And I think it's a very valuable exercise for any young leader who hasn't experienced that to close their eyes and imagine that happening and almost act out in their mind how they would react in that situation is, is a great exercise to go through. Just use your imagination and, and see yourself in that situation because, as you know, in the Navy, it doesn't have to be combat for there to be a catastrophe on a ship Absolutely, and where real lives are in danger. It could be collisions, fires, anything like that. And young leaders could be called upon at the blink of an eye with no warning whatsoever to have to fight, a sh fight their ship, save their ship, and save their crew. And you're right. Books are descriptive. And if you, can't, if you can't live the experience, at least try to imagine it and think yourself through. And of course, like you said, train and be ready to fight. I think you're spot on. And uh, you know, I, I, if I go back and could change those things, I would probably spend a little more time uh, getting into that, but that's kind of something that, you know, I think you just have to kind of, hopefully we have in the community, we have talked about that and we have pushed that into our training syllabus at all levels to try to, you know, get more of that inculcated into the, you know, the, the no kidding, you know, what, what you need to be doing and be preparing yourself for. And you're right about our fighting men and women. This is my way of saying it. They are truly badasses. And that's why I'm so passionate about this project, because I, I think that it's incumbent upon leaders to make sure that they are applying those badasses appropriately 
when the time is right and anything that, that a young leader can do to make themselves better and learn from people like you and the other people I've had on this podcast so that they can start to develop their own leadership skills and traits and personalities, their leadership personalities. So, you know, I want to use that as my intro to, you know, saying thank you for your time. This is no, no small amount of time for somebody of, of your level of importance in the Navy right now. And, and I appreciate your two hours of time. We have talked about a lot of things. We talked about your time on the USS Merrill, where you had very early experiences with a hard CO and uh, how that navigation error caused a, a clamshell of communicating up and down the chain of command, how that fed into your boiling down to that priority, cr- creating priorities, risk, and then communication, your PRC uh, acronym that you had, and how that became very instrumental. Those two things became very instrumental in your leadership style. And then you spoke about some of the mistakes that you made, which I thought are just so relatable to people. When young leaders hear about mistakes that other people make, those are very valuable. And the fact that you had the the nip lock for losing your temper with your shipmate, I think those are, that's a really, was a really constructive part of your, of your overview of your career. And then your, the direction to the tactical warfighters. I just love that. I thought that was fantastic. And and I really hope that people listening to this take their own version of that away and, and figure out a way to very succinctly give direction to their tactical warfighters. And you mentioned before commanders write their philosophy of their command philosophies. And I don't think that's something people do until they get to the battalion or the ship level. But geez, I, you know, second lieutenants and ensigns can have their own command philosophy. They don't necessarily need to publish it, but they should have their own command philosophy in their minds. And the way you made it very simple is something you were using as an admiral. It doesn't have to be any more complicated for an 01, 02, or 03. You know, I did go back and um, I did at one time when I wrote my command philosophies. When I showed up on the ship the first time, no one really told me what to do or how to do, but I felt it was important that I communicated how I looked at the world to my 20-person division. It was a, a mini command philosophy as I look back on it. I didn't know what a command philosophy was there while I wasn't in command. But, you know, I went back and, you know, that did not change a lot. You know, I looked at when I was at Ensign, you know, doing things against your shipmates. We're a team, you know, and, you know, we're going to uphold some standards here. And, and uh, you know, we're going to create a place that your grandmother would be proud of. I wrote that back in, in when I was an ensign, uh, or JG, actually. You know, at the time, this was, a, it was just interesting that, you know, as you go back, I still wanted a place where families would be proud to come on and you should bring it on like it's your home. The ship is your home. And that same kind of idea progressed. So it was a very good to me to kind of see that, you know, I had some kernels of, uh, of my future leadership style, even at the O1 level, but I just didn't really know it. You know, you were doing things, but it would be nice to go back uh, and do it again with malice aforethought. I also really enjoyed your story about being a day behind schedule and how that was somebody screwed up. But rather than take the tact of maybe your former first CEO that you were talking about was hard to deal with, you took a different tact, which was, hey, bring me the problem. Let's talk it out and figure out how to fix this. And I think that's an important part of command philosophy at any level, which is tell me the information I need so we can make a decision to fix what's wrong rather than try to hide it because problems only get worse when they get hidden. And that's probably what your first CO experience when everybody clamshelled up on the, on the information flow. Then you went in and you, you told that great story about how you created the task to find the submarine and how that ended up getting all the way down to the, to the handler who moves airplanes around the flight deck. And how could the priority of finding a sub have anything to do with how he, you know, slots airplanes on the, on the deck. But then he turned around and said like, well, if the priority is the sub, then the priority should be the helos and how that 
carried over into a, to a sense of accomplishment from the Hilo squadron. And then you made this comment, which was great. I wrote it down, which was you know, basically through no personal efforts of your own, the team just did the business. I paraphrase that a little bit because I was typing, but that's essentially what you said. And then you came up with this, if it doesn't make sense, question it. And you got a little bit of pushback. And then I wrote down the phrase, like, do you agree? And does this make sense? And we talked about that for a little while. I thought that was fantastic. And I think that's a great takeaway. And then we wrapped it up with that last conversation about Ernest Evans and your comment about you have to read and you have to think through things that you can't experience and get your nose into some descriptive books, train and just be ready to fight. So with that kind of recap, I just want to throw out one last question to round it all out. I think it's impossible to ask any accomplished flag officer like yourself, what is the one most important leadership characteristic that you can point to for your own success or success that you've seen other people have in 30 or 40 year career in the service, but I'm going to ask you to try to pick one. It's very easy for me, actually. Uh, empathy. I forget who I told this, but I'll go back to, again, you talk about a moment where I realized the importance of empathy. My two sons are adopted and it just so happens that uh, our adoptive or our, the birth mother gave birth the night of the, my first day of turnover is the second in command XO of an Aegis cruise of the USS Way City. And, you know, there's a big deal being a Lieutenant Commander XO for an 06 captain back then. You know, it, it wasn't anything we planned. It came a little early and this was in California. We were in Florida. And I remember I called the commanding officer up about two in the morning. You know, we were up all night and, and I was turning over. The other guy was leaving on Thursday, never to be, go, never to be back again. And I called the commanding officer and I said, uh, sir, just, this is uh, your prospective XO. Just to let you know, my son was just born in California. This is like five o'clock in the morning I'm calling him. And I just let you know, I'm going to go fly out and, and get him. And his, his response to me was, sir, it was, uh, well, XO, you know, you're, uh, you got to be turning over this week. And he said, uh, do what you got to do. But, you know, you got to turn over and, you know, I expect you to be turned over by Thursday. And this was now Tuesday morning early. Right. And I, again, up all night, you know, this, you're probably sensing a theme here, but I, I'm, I'm just pissed off. And I'm like, you know, I mean, you know, let's say I stayed there. My mind was not going to be on my job. I mean, I got to go out, get my new kid, got legal things. I got to get him back. I got to turn over. My head's about to explode. And all I got from him was, well, you better be here to turn over. And it's so, it was to the point where I almost said, you know what, tell you what, I'm not going to turn over. I'm just going to put my letter in and this is it, you know, and then going through my head. I mean, I obviously didn't do that, but that's how much it meant to me. And it, and it just made such a clear indication to me that if you don't let people take care of what they need to take care of, you can't always do it or whatever. And there's time when missions first, but this was just, we were in port. We were in, you know, it wasn't even, it, it was clearly in retrospect, all he had to do is say, Hey, congratulations, go off. Do it, take what you need. We'll handle it here. I'll have Chang cover for you till you get whatever. But that's not what I heard. Instead, I go out there. Now I'm a nervous wreck. I'm trying to freaking get this all done and get back. And, and I'll tell you what, I have bent over backwards for anybody who has needed something for their family or for, along the way. And it always pays off in spades. And, you know, you can't always do it. But, you know, when things happen, if people's brains aren't there anyway, let them go do what they need to do. Give them their time. Take care of them. If you, you know, we, we have a saying, you know, sales don't care what you know till they know that you care. And they say mm -hmm. that because that quality of empathy as a leader, if, if you don't care about the people who work for you, then you shouldn't be in command. 
And in fact, I was last week, I was at a change of command for the uh, Supreme Allied Commander Transformation down in Norfolk. And this French general gave a quote, which I thought, you know, was probably one of the best quotes I, I, I'd heard. And he said, to command is to love without them knowing it. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's powerful. He was talking about his ability to command and what, what it meant to him. I would only add a corollary to say, I think it's okay if they know about it. So, so that's kind of the parting thought I'll give you because I was very shocked to hear also that, uh, that General Berlakis had a very similar comment. And I was, when he said it, I, I, knew, I knew the words, what I would say before he would say it, but I didn't know he would say it. So, uh, <laughs> um, so to me, it, was, it just, again, reaffirmed these things we know. If somebody told me back when I was an ensign that someday somebody would tell me empathy would be the most important quality you'd be as a leader, I would have told them they're crazy. But now I believe it fully. I do too. I'm hearing the word empathy a lot uh, out of my friends in the military. And I think when I grew up, there was some sort of notion that if you were empathetic, you were weak, uh, or if you were empathetic, you weren't a tough enough leader. And now maybe this is just the luxury of being 54 years old, but I look back on my 20 year old self and I said, if I could give myself a couple pieces of advice, one of them would be, hey, lighten up, <laughs> lighten up. People have lives and they need to lead them. Yep. And you're a bad, you're not, you're not doing anybody any service as a leader if you're making their lives more difficult than they need to be. Yep. Absolutely agree. I'm, I'm gl I was glad you've glad you wrapped up with that. Well, uh, Admiral Ron Boxel, thank you so much for your time. I know this was two hours of, of your time and you're a busy man in the Pentagon these days and, and that's not an easy job. And I know you work really hard. So uh, on behalf of everybody that listens to this, I want to say thank you for your time and, and your insight and your your moments in leadership that you shared with us. I hope that people take away from this that somebody with three nip locks can become a three-star admiral. <laughs> Let's hope so. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me today. Thank you.